Please open with me back to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. And we won't read through this long chapter again. (laughs) I'll spare you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, speak to us. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? To take the the glorious truth that you put in your word and, and bring it forth in a way that is pleasing to you. Father, I ask that you would help me this evening to do so. Recognizing that without your spirit, this is impossible. Lord, we we ask for your spirit to lead us, to guide us, to open our hearts and our minds to to your word, to behold wonderful things, life-changing things. Help us to see your, your sovereignty and your goodness. That your sovereignty is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have been looking in the book of Ephesians at God's sovereignty and election, and even his sovereignty and adoption. And one of the things that I want us to see in this chapter of Daniel today is this sovereignty of God actually being played out. And it's a wonderful thing. We, we, again, we often look at God's election or His sovereignty as this, this thing that's perhaps unfair or, or this thing that's really hard to, to reconcile with. But, but when we understand how God uses this sovereignty for good in the lives of His people, it's amazing. And so we praise God like the Apostle Paul In Ephesians chapter 1. So look with me in our text. We'll start in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king. This, dear friends, is a sign to listen. The king is speaking. When when you received a letter and and it was signed by the king, it meant you, you pay attention to what's being said. And he says, to all peoples, nations, and and languages that dwell in the earth. This pagan king is wanting the whole earth to know the goodness of God. He wants them to listen, to hear. What what he has to say is important. And he says, peace be, be multiplied to you. I'm bringing you a message of peace. When you receive an, an edict, a letter from the, from the king, you, you wonder, am I in trouble? Is our taxes going up? He says, peace. This is a message of peace. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. And if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, this is astounding. This man is trying to fulfill the Great Commission right now. 
And then he says, how great are his signs and, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. This is a pagan king praising God like the Apostle Paul. Do you recall how he pointed that out, how sometimes Paul is writing and then he, he, he's going through something logical and then the next thing you know, he, he's breaking forth in praise. He can't mention God without saying praise him or, or bless his name or something like that. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. He, he mentions the Most High God and then all of a sudden he breaks forth in praise. How great are his signs and how mighty his works. He's overwhelmed with God. And Nebuchadnezzar begins to tell a story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him. So Nebuchadnezzar tells this dream to Daniel. And here's the interesting thing. He calls in Daniel last. But this is not the first time Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. He calls in the magicians, the Chaldeans, the, the soothsayers, everyone but Daniel. And when no one else can give him an answer, he calls in Daniel. And why is this significant? Well, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream as well. And he went through the same process. He called in the wise men, the, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. And, and, and they ask him, what is it that you dreamed Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells them, no, you tell me what I dreamed. Because if I tell you my dream, you can lie to me and say this is the interpretation. But I know you can interpret dreams if you tell me my dream and its interpretation. And by the way, says Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't do this, I will cut you in pieces and turn your homes into piles of ashes. This man is ruthless. And so Nebuchadnezzar is a man of his word. So the, the, these magicians, the, the, the soothsayers, the wise men of Babylon, they, they tell Nebuchadnezzar, what, what you tell us to do is impossible. The only person that could do this is God who, not, who does not dwell in flesh. No man can do what you asked. So Nebuchadnezzar starts killing people. And all of a sudden, here comes Daniel. And what does Daniel do? He prays to God. God gives him the dream and the interpretation. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and tells him what he dreamed. How could a man do that? 
And not only that, but he tells him the interpretation. So Nebuchadnezzar does what? He's stunned. And he fell on his face prostrate before Daniel, we are told. And and he commanded that they should present an offering, an incense to him. The, The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of secrets. Since you could reveal this secret. But notice how God is getting glory for himself, even in this pagan empire, making his name great. But now you would think that if you had a dream and there was only one man in your kingdom who could come to you, not only tell you the interpretation, but tell you the dream without you telling him that you would go to this person first The next time you had a dream, you want it interpreted. But what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes to the wise men of Babylon first. He doesn't go to Daniel first. And you ask the question, why does he not go to Daniel? Perhaps, dear friends, sometimes we don't want to actually know the truth. Daniel was a servant of The holy God. Notice how often Nebuchadnezzar says that. His God is the holy God. Not the unrighteous gods. Not the gods who allow me to live in my sin and transgression. I think perhaps Nebuchadnezzar knows that there's something about this dream that's not good. He sees there is a tree, and this tree is magnificent, and it gets chopped down. Perhaps, even though Nebuchadnezzar pretends that he, he really wants the truth, maybe there's something in him that, that, that's hoping that, that one of these pagan wise men can give him an answer. And how often... Do we do things like this? How often do we know the answer, aware to get the answer to our problems, but we search someplace else? Oh, we don't go to the friend who is going to open up his Bible. We go to the one who is going to affirm me, who is going to tell me what I want to hear. I want to know the meaning of life. Maybe I'll, I'll go to an atheist. Maybe I'll, I'll think of evolution in order to somehow pacify my conscience and my rejection of God and my sin. I'm not going to go to the Bible, the source of real answers. Why? Because the truth is going to hurt. How often do we know that God's way is the proper way that works. But we say, I'll find a shortcut. I'll find a different way to go. I know this is the truth, but, but I really don't want the truth. I don't want you to tell me that. I already know that. Just tell me something that I want to hear. And I, and I believe that this is what Nebuchadnezzar did. And, and when his wise men just say, you know, I can't give you the interpretation They're probably afraid to lie to him because he puts people to death for that. So then he's like, I have no other choice. I guess I'll call in 
Daniel. And so Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel his dream. He says, I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head, while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried, cried aloud and said, Thus, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. I think we can see here the point. Nebuchadnezzar knows that something bad is happening to someone. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have had. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me. You see it again right there? You declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to. Why not? Because you can tell me the truth. But only since they can't give me an answer. Then you tell me. And then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. Daniel knows the interpretation of this dream, so it astonishes him. And his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Daniel is surprised. He's shocked. He's standing before this mighty, powerful, brilliant king, and he knows immediately the interpretation that that something is going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar to humble him greatly, that God is going to judge him. And he was probably not only troubled by what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, but also by the fact that he had to tell Nebuchadnezzar this. Can you imagine that? Being the man who has to tell this king, God is going to humble you. I mean, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody humbles Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's astonished. And he's troubled. And he answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. I think that Daniel seems to desire mercy for the king. And and this is a pagan king, a a king who is responsible for, for kidnapping him. But he desires mercy for this king. And he's troubled by the judgment of this king. Dear friends, we should be troubled by judgment. Our desire is that men should, should, should be shown mercy by God and grace by God. And it's okay to pray, Lord, stop this person from being wicked, either through judgment or mercy. But we prefer mercy. To prefer judgment over mercy is to, to put the axe at our own necks. 
Because how often could God have given us judgment instead of mercy? What would happen to the wicked man who, who would not show mercy as he had been shown mercy in the Gospels? You don't show mercy to others after I've shown mercy to you? Daniel desires mercy for the king. And it's a sobering, sobering matter that God is going to unleash judgment on this person. I mean, can you imagine if anybody was, was ever going to be happy about God's judgment, it would be the person who was kidnapped, who was taken to a foreign land. Yes, Lord, pour out your wrath on this wicked king. And he desires mercy. And this is not to say that, that, that we don't even rejoice when God does pour out wrath on a wicked person and he stops them by pouring out wrath upon them. He will be glorified through that. But, but I'm speaking to our hearts here. You think of a man who's evil like Hitler. And you say, yes, I want him to be brought down. But in your heart, do you say, Lord, show mercy to that man. Show mercy to that man. Yes, stop him right now. But, but, but I desire for, for him to be saved because there but for the grace of God go I. And so Daniel begins to explain the interpretation. The tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king. It sounds to me like Nathan, standing before King David. It's quite obvious that the, that the bad thing happening in this dream is to the tree. And, and now Daniel has the, the task of telling the king, this tree, it's you. And it just reminds me of Nathan going to David, telling him a story of great injustice. And, and David's anger is kindled at this injustice. So, so he says, this man deserves to die. Who did this? He deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David is enraged. And Nathan says, you are the man. Can, can you imagine being in that situation? He's enraged at this. And you have the task of now turning it on him. That's no small task. What is he confronting David about? Adultery and murder. That man was guilty of murder. And now you have to confront him. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who would cut you in pieces and burn your house to ashes. And he has mentioned that multiple times in this book. And you're going to stand before him and tell him this, this, this tree, this great tree that gets chopped down to nothing, it's you. That takes courage, boldness. 
Different. We must be willing to speak truth with courage in this way. Yes, you could, you could chop off my head right now. You could cut me in pieces right now. But guess what? It is you, O king. I'm not going to sugarcoat. I'm not going to beat around the bush. How many of us would do this? In David's in shoes, I mean in um, Nathan's shoes or in Daniel's shoes. But perhaps you go to another country today. And you're kidnapped. And you stand before a leader, a dictator in that country, and, and, and he says to you, Christianity says, I need to repent of my sins, but I don't need to repent. Tell me, do I need to repent of my sins? Is the way that I rule wicked? You tell me that, and I might get angry with you. Would you sugarcoat the gospel? Would you water it down? Would you say, you know, you just need to have faith in Jesus, but some people speak of repentance. I don't really think that needs to come right away. We can talk about repentance later. Or would we say, repent? Would we say, when when Scripture talks about the man under judgment, the man in sin, it's talking about you as well. And so Daniel says, Inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the Most High. And so he tells him the interpretation that he's going to lose his mind. Like a wild beast. He said they shall drive you from men. Your, your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. And they shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you. Listen to this. Till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And gives it to whomever he chooses. Once again, Daniel standing before a pagan king who's willing and ready to murder and tells him all of this is happening to you for this very reason so that you understand that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Where's Nebuchadnezzar? The kingdom of men. In other words, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a great king. But God is about to show you that he is the ruler even of your kingdom. And this is the point of all this. The, the most high rules in the kingdom of man and gives it to whomever he chooses. Oh, look at how he's cutting down Nebuchadnezzar. God gives it to whomever he chooses. But, but I worked my way up to this. I was a great king. I was a brilliant king. I did this and I did that. It was all me. God is the ruler. And he gives it to whomever he chooses. Everything you have, Nebuchadnezzar, is the result of God giving it to you. So God revealed through Daniel 
that Nebuchadnezzar is going to lose his mind and graze grass like an ox for seven years until he understood that God rules. But notice, even in this, the grace and mercy of God. God tells him, after this, your kingdom will be restored to you. Once you understand that heaven rules, your kingdom will be restored to you. There's mercy and there's grace here. And then Daniel continues on in his boldness and he gives the king some bold, unsolicited advice. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel calls this vicious, murderous king to repentance. Imagine how easy it would have been to, to again, sugarcoat this. You only asked me for the interpretation. That's all I'm going to give you. He goes beyond the interpretation and says, Repent, O king. Repent. And perhaps God will be merciful to you. Dear friends, true love and concern for a person under judgment compels him to speak the truth. Do we understand that? Daniel realized this judgment of God was serious. This was coming. This was not a joke. It was not a game. It was not a false promise. The only possible way to to maybe perhaps get out of this was to repent and turn from your wickedness. But this is the same scenario that we face when we are wherever we are with unbelievers. Yes, we can tell them what they want to hear, but if we truly love them, we are going to give them the truth, no matter how much they hate it, no matter how much they despise it, no matter how much they persecute us for it. Because the truth saves, and only the truth saves. This was an urgent situation. This judgment was urgent. Repent now. But but how much more urgent is it for for unbelievers? We we don't know how much time they have. As Jonathan Edwards would say, your, your very next step might be into eternity. Repent now. There there is urgency here. And notice that he doesn't just give him a vague term. He doesn't just say repent. And leave it at that. He tells him how to repent. He says, break off your sins by being righteous. In other words, stop doing wicked things. Stop disobeying God's law. Which, by the way, is the standard of righteousness. There is no no sin without the law. The, The law is a standard of righteousness. And by the way, he's outside of Israel. And he's calling a pagan king to obey God. So much for the law never applied to anyone but Israel. 
He's calling a pagan king to stop doing wicked things, to stop being unrighteous, which means stop obeying, stop disobeying God's law, his standard of righteousness. And not only that, but show mercy to the poor. In other words, not only cease to do evil, but learn to do good. He's calling this man to repentance, and he's, he's telling him what repentance looks like. He, he actually wants this man to repent and to receive mercy. We can think of men like John the Baptist, who we just discussed in, in prayer meeting, doing something similar. Dear friends, may we not be fearful to call powerful and wicked men to repentance. We have a history of this, don't we? We we talked about on Wednesday, John the Baptist losing his head for telling his leader, it's not lawful for you to do that. You are in sin. And Daniel could have lost his head very easily for calling Nebuchadnezzar to repentance, but he did it anyways because that was the loving thing to do. And he wants him to obey God and to receive mercy from God. May we follow suit. May we not be afraid to do this. But what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Does he repent? Now notice here, when we pick up in verse 28, it's no longer Nebuchadnezzar writing. It's no longer him speaking. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built? For a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. That should make us cringe. What is this man thinking? After being warned about his pride and his arrogance and being told that that God is the ruler of the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. And now Nebuchadnezzar is walking about the palace, boasting about what he has done. And you could see how easy it would be for him to do this. He probably has in his view the hanging gardens that he created. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a, a 400-foot structure with, with, with plants and water trickling down. Some say that it was, it was almost like an air-conditioned building, a magnificent man. And he could see the, the city walls that were so wide that, that, that several chariots could go through at the same time. And he's looking upon these things and he's saying, man, I'm pretty good and powerful. What I have built is Amazing. And in the midst of his sin comes judgment. This is a frightening thing. This always frightens me when I hear words like this. While the word was still in the king's mouth, God said, enough. 
So, so while these words, while he's, he's boasting, while it's still in his mouth, fresh in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Judgment is here. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Dear friends, God's judgment is not a myth. Warnings are not in vain. Daniel says, that very hour, the word was fulfilled. How many of us, when we die, you stand before the Lord, and the word of the Lord will be fulfilled in saying, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The word was fulfilled. And he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Now we should note here what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. We actually have a word for this today. It's called boanthropy. And essentially what it is 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 they, they believe that it's a person who believes they are a bovine usually either a cow or an ox. And men like Freud and and Carl Jung try to explain this by saying, you know, people probably have a dream and then they wake up from their dream, but their mind is still in their dream. And so they believe they are something they are not. And modern psychology and psychiatry tells us that this is perhaps a symptom of something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And this is how mental health works. If you don't know what it is, you say it's a symptom of possibly this or possibly that. But I want you to notice something. Even even secular psychologists, psychiatrists, they talk about this condition and they even mention how Nebuchadnezzar appeared to have this, but they never mention God's judgment. It's simply explained away. And dear friends, you and I need to understand the society that we live in. In our society today, once Nebuchadnezzar woke up, they would have told him, you were not under God's judgment. You had a mental disorder. And this is not to say that that, that there is not a a real thing as, as mental disorders. But, but understand that, that many things that, that are spiritual in nature are now called mental disorder. And so you are unfaithful. You cheat. You steal. You do what's wrong. And you feel bad about it. You have guilt. And then you're told you have clinical depression and you take a drug to fix it. Do we understand that? This is significant, dear friends, because Christians are being told that you need to recognize mental health and you don't go to a pastor, go to a professional. 
Men who operate from the, the presupposition of, of man as a bag of chemicals and every solution is to simply balance the chemicals. Or men like Freud operating from a presupposition of the Bible is a false standard. You, you feel bad simply because you've been moralized in a culture that used the unrealistic standards of God's law to shape you. So what you need to do is you need to remoralize yourself with realistic standards and stop resisting the urge to sin. Do we understand how dangerous that is? I have a good friend, a doctor in Augusta, Georgia, Dr. Ed Payne. He's written several books on medical ethics. And he points out that probably 80% of his clients in his family practice over the years, their, their conditions were physical, not physical, but spiritual in nature. Or what, what some people might say mental. And so oftentimes a person comes in and they've been experimented on with five different type of drugs for, for depression or anxiety and he would simply help them and work through their, their problems using the word of God. And the next thing you knew, they were better. And again, this is not saying that, that there's not real things, real mental problems. But we must understand that this is a spiritual issue here. Nebuchadnezzar is under the judgment of God. And in today's culture, they would say, no, that was not God's judgment. It was a mental disorder. And we should also note that most of what we call Mental disorders and syndromes are not actually scientific. And what do I mean by that? Well, we can look at something such as a blood pressure. And we know scientifically, objectively, that when we take a blood pressure, we're taking the pressure in the arteries. The top number is when the heart is contracted, and the bottom number is when the heart is at rest. And we can say this is the objective number that we see, and this is the range that we should see. And it's very scientific. But this is why a lot of mental disorders are called syndromes and disorders instead of diseases because they're not really scientific. We don't understand them. We can't measure how much dopamine is in your brain and then say, well, let me give you more dopamine because you have a deficiency. It doesn't work that way. And we need to understand this. We need to understand that, that there are people having very real spiritual issues that are being told, you are not a sinner. You are sick. In my days of working EMS, I spent much time in mental hospitals. Transporting even five-year-olds who had been experimented on with five different medications. Why? Because he showed unusual behavior after being abused. Who would act normal after being abused? And, and by the way, what is normal for a five-year-old? I have one of those. My wife doesn't think he's normal, but I say he's just a boy. <laughs> but the point is this, dear friends. We need to understand the spiritual nature of this problem. And we live in a world that does not operate from that presupposition and so we see that when God promises judgment, he is not joking. But, but notice how many opportunities Nebuchadnezzar had to repent. 
Because once again, we, we think of this angry, vicious God of the Old Testament. This is what people say. He, oh, he was just a wrathful, vengeful, bloodthirsty God in the Old Testament. And he gives Nebuchadnezzar opportunity after opportunity to repent. So we can go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel told him he was a great king because God had made him such. And Nebuchadnezzar, after hearing his dream interpreted, falls down on his face and says to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But he does not humble himself. He was warned. You are a great king, Nebuchadnezzar. This is true. It's because God has given it to you. And Nebuchadnezzar, he realizes, he says it himself, God is the Lord of kings. He knew, but he doesn't repent. Chapter 3, he throws the three Hebrew boys into the fiery furnace. And and, and by the way, this is astounding. After in chapter 2, he says, your God is truly the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And the next thing you know, he's building a golden idol and he wants everyone to bow down to it. And because the Hebrew boys won't bow down to it, he's furious. So furious that he says, throw them in the fire and turn it up seven times hotter than normal. But, but you just said that their God was the God of gods and the, the Lord of kings. He's wrong. He knows it. He can't deny it. He already said it. He turns up the furnace so hot that the people who throw the the three men in are singed. They're burned. They're they're killed because the flames were so hot. But these three men don't die. They're standing in this furnace that is seven times hotter than normal, and they don't even smell like smoke. And we read that God... Blessed, Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's words and yielded their bodies, that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. Because there is no other God who can deliver like that. By the way, he's a hypocrite. What does he say? He's going to make a decree that anyone who speaks amiss against their God should be cut in pieces. And then he's standing in his home, speaking against his speaking against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by denying what Daniel said, that that everything you have is from God, and, and, and him saying, I built this up by my mighty power. By doing that, he's speaking against their God. He deserves his own judgment. But even after that, dear friends, he does not humble himself in repentance. 
God often gives us many chances to repent. But dear friends, eventually those chances run out. Let us not tempt God in this. Many of us are like Nebuchadnezzar, aren't we? We've been shown the goodness and the kindness of mercy over and over again. He has shown us that he is Lord over and over again. But still we refuse to humble ourselves in repentance and faith. God is allowing you time to confess, to repent, to believe. But eventually that time will run out. And judgment will be swift. And one last thing we note here is is the sovereign grace of God in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Do you realize that God could have destroyed Nebuchadnezzar just like he did Pharaoh? And so we're talking about this, this election, this predestination about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. God gave Pharaoh no such chance. In fact, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He he gave him over to his sin so that he would not repent. He was a vessel of destruction. But but God is merciful here to, to Nebuchadnezzar and he allows Daniel to be brought into his kingdom. And over and over again, he uses things to make his name great, to show Nebuchadnezzar that he is God of gods and that he is Lord of kings. And he gives him chance again and again and again to repent. And then when he won't repent, he sovereignly takes away his mind and his sanity, humbles him. Have you ever thought that God is doing this in love for Nebuchadnezzar? So what happens? God took this proud, impenitent sinner and broke him. And so once again, Nebuchadnezzar picks up writing. His mind has returned. In verse 34, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. He has better theology than most Americans. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand. That is pure sovereignty. Do you realize that the most powerful man on earth is writing that no one can restrain God's hand? Or say to him, what have you done? You can't stop him. And you can't question him. This is coming from the most powerful ruler on earth at the time. And notice that Daniel is praising God. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. 
And then he writes, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. He's not a liberal theologian. And those who walk in pride... He is able to put down. Here is this pagan king. Loses his mind. To the point where he's not, he's not even writing anymore. He only writes it up to the point where he's about to walk, walk along the walls and, and, and speak proudly. He doesn't write until that point. He stops. He's lost his mind. He doesn't even know what happened. He he literally had the mind of a beast. He's eating grass. And, And just like that, he wakes up. And he says, my reason returned to me. And I praised the Most High God. What happened? Was he deeply contemplating theological truths while he was eating grass? I doubt it. His mind was gone. Notice he didn't even have reason. He said, my reason returned to me. It was gone. He couldn't reason himself to to believe that God was sovereign. All of this is the sovereign hand of God in his life. He took this man, humbled him, brought him out of that all sovereignly. And we say, well, no, no, no. It was eating the grass like an animal that caused him to turn to God. No, it wasn't. God did do that to show him that that he is the sovereign God. But notice the whole time, this is going to happen to you for seven years. And at the end of this time, you're going to know that God rules and, and everything is going to be returned to you. So I'm going to make this happen to you. I'm going to make you see the truth and I'm going to give you your kingdom back to you. Nebuchadnezzar did nothing during that time. It was all God. Do we realize that? The goodness of the sovereign grace of God. Nebuchadnezzar was not going to be humbled any other way. But God changed this man's heart. It's just not what we see with the Apostle Paul. On the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. Not contemplating faith in Christ but to persecute Christians and Christ stops him in his tracks and he's a new man instantly. That, dear friends, is regeneration, that the sovereign work of God. Nebuchadnezzar was an instrument of grace. While a man like Pharaoh was an instrument of wrath. What is the difference between Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar? What's the difference between those two men? God is the difference. Nebuchadnezzar was not more humble, so he was able to follow God because he was a humble man. We, we see that was simply not the case. But, but wait a minute. Didn't God work wonders in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and, and that's why he turned to God? What did God do to Egypt? Plague after plague 
after plague. And after each plague, the, the, the Pharaoh bow down and say, this is the sovereign God. I'll, I'll repent now and I'll trust this God. No, God gave him over to his sins and he wouldn't repent. He didn't do that to Nebuchadnezzar. He sovereignly changed him. And dear friends, those of us who are Christians, this is what God did for us. We would have never changed. We were proud, impenitent sinners at war with God, and He sovereignly changed us. We were no better than Nebuchadnezzar. We were like Nebuchadnezzar in our pride, thinking that we could save ourselves or thinking that we didn't need salvation. But God sovereignly changed us. Dear friends, for those who don't know Christ, let Nebuchadnezzar's life be a warning to you. To not go on in sin like Nebuchadnezzar did. With being called to repentance over and over and over again. God was merciful to him. He was. But we don't take God's mercy for granted. We repent and believe in Jesus while there is time. Because as surely as Nebuchadnezzar's dream came, became reality, so shall judgment come upon those who refuse to humble themselves in faith and bow the knee to Christ. God fulfilling his word to Nebuchadnezzar is a sign to us that his word will be fulfilled, that his word is true. If it is said, it will be done. He will judge the world in righteousness. And let us not say, well, Nebuchadnezzar could go on sinning until God just did something majestic in his life. So I'll go on sinning until that happens. Dear friends, you never know when the next sin may be your last. Turn to Christ today while there is time. And for those of us who know Christ, let us look at the situation of, of Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and praise God for his sovereign election recognizing again that we were no better than him. But that like he sovereignly handled Nebuchadnezzar and brought him from darkness to life, he sovereignly did that for us. We were not good enough. We were not smart enough. We could not reason ourselves into the kingdom. God has done this for us. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 3, this is a reason to praise God from whom all blessings come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we see how you are able to take the most arrogant, proud, boastful, impenitent sinner and humble him. Such is the power of your sovereign grace for whom you predestine, you call. 
And those whom you call, you justify. And those whom you justify, you glorify. Lord, we admit it's all you. You do it. Father, may may this dissolve our hearts in praise for your mercy and your grace in our lives. and, And that in doing so, we would have gratitude that leads us to live for your honor and glory. And may those who don't know you see the seriousness of judgment. That your kindness, your patience is meant to lead them to repentance. But that there will come a day when repentance is no longer an option, but judgment only. And help them to seek you this day while there is still hope. To turn to Christ for salvation this very day while there is hope. And not go on living in sin. In your son's name we pray. Amen.